Hello, and welcome to the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories. And I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with multiple Academy Award-winning director Alejandro Iñárritu to discuss his newest work, the surreal yet somehow pseudo-autobiographical film Bardo, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. Along with Alejandro, joining us today is the production sound mixer Santiago Nunez, re-recording mixers John Taylor and Ken Yazumoto, the latter of whom also worked as the film's sound designer alongside supervising sound editor Martin Hernandez and also Nicholas Becker, who wasn't able to join our conversation today. If you've already seen the film, then you know it's pretty much impossible to discuss it without getting into spoilers. So if you haven't seen it yet, I highly suggest you do. But beyond avoiding spoilers, I suggest you check this film out because it is truly a remarkable piece of work. And as you'll soon find out, it took Alejandro over a year just to edit it. It was just a monstrous undertaking making this film. But I wanted to start today's conversation with Alejandro's approach to sound design. The last two films he directed, The Revenant and Birdman, both got their team's Oscar nominations for the sound work. So he is a director who not only appreciates the storytelling power of sound, but knows how to use it. He has said that he believes that sound is 60% of the movie-going experience. And I wanted to know if he, as a co-writer of the film, was thinking about sound and sound design and music as he wrote the script. I don't think that I'm thinking at that time in the sound, but once I start the pre-production or the, the when, when, when I start, I will say, uh, flesh out or materializing, and really going to the next stage of writing, which is that, like how really this will come out from that lines of the paper, uh, definitely sounds it's something important that I start to consider. But I will say that even before the writing come a process of uh, understanding the music first, what is the, the sound and what is the instrument that will command and what is the genre or the tone of that music, you know, the color of that music. I think that always for me is crucial. I knew that it would be some metals and some kind of Mexican bands, a sound. I didn't know exactly how and what, but I knew that's the way. And uh, so in a way it's funny uh, that your question make me think now that it's true that there's a preconception that I need of the music, how the music sounds. Then in the writing, I'm not thinking about the sound, but then immediately after the writing, when I start to confront, I need to know. And and what you were saying is important because for me, the real thing is that audio, differently from the images, uh, the sound of a, a film is primal, you know, is is a raw primal frequency that hits your body and the body does not lie and and in the way we don't have to reinterpretate or rationalize audio as, as the images no the images are a fragmented image that then our brain go to a process to put them together and make sense of them but audio is absolutely neutral and pure and, and that opportunity to connect with the audiences through the sound in a primal way, I think it's what it's called the, the audiovisual media, which in a way that's why audio is first, <laughs> audio, audiovisual. So I think the cinema is an audiovisual because audio in a way comes first and the image. And, and I think, as you said, it's 60% or 70% can be sometimes as important as the image. I agree. So, Martina, I wanted to start off with you. So you've been nominated twice for the Academy Award for working with Alejandro on Birdman and again on The Revenant. So 
I mean, obviously he's very knowledgeable and thoughtful and creative about sound and his pictures. So my question for you is what's, what's kind of unique and distinctive about Alejandro's uh, approach to sound design for film? See, uh, Alejandro is, is more of a, a, a director of sound. He, he's a director for sure, but he's, his memory of sound is unparalleled. He can remember resonances, reverb time, you know, levels. Once he grabbed an element that he likes, you can't change it because he's gonna, he wants that. So, um, Bardo is a lot about his memory. Or, or the way memories interact and they trick you. And it's interesting how can you represent that? Because right now we're, you know, having a conversation about that concept. But okay, now let's translate that into the soundtracks of, of the film. So to me, it's the, the very beautiful aspect of this film is it's, it's like a joy ride that starts in one point and never stops until the film ends, like an album. No, it's a concept album, like those Pink Floyd albums that you play the needle first track and goes all the way until the very end. Bardo is a, a concept album with film. Well, I, I really appreciate you saying that. I think that's a, a great way of thinking about it. And one of the things that just gave me so much joy in watching and listening to this film is that you're using sound in, in a way that um, I find particularly delightful, which is to give the audience the experience of your main character. And for reasons that we don't understand until the end, that perspective is very twisted. Um, and so you use sound in a very surreal way. I, I would love for you to just talk about, we talk a lot about this podcast on, on this podcast about the first like 10 minutes of the film and how you as a storyteller you're establishing the rules of the world and explaining to the audience how you're going to tell the story. And you start with such mesmerizing scenes, the, the leaping man in the desert. And then of course the baby Mateo, who is not ready to be born yet. Can you talk a little bit about how you're using sound in that first 10 minutes to give the audience a sort of a, you're signaling to them that not everything is right or straightforward with this world. Yeah, as, as you said, as you said, everything is coming from a, a very particular point of view, and it can be called as a lucid dream, right? And which basically means that you are aware that you are dreaming, and and that sensation is very pleasant for all of the people that is l listening to us. When you are uh, aware that you are dreaming, then that dream is not any more dangerous, and then you—it's pleasant. You don't want to be wake up. I hate when when I wake up and I'm knowing that I'm dreaming. So that's kind of the sensation that I wanted the people to have from this shadow that started with the film, with somebody you know trying to fly, which is a very recurrent dream that I have. Uh, of flying, but always when I dream that I fly, I am always kind of very close to, to, to the ground, very dangerously. So this is a shadow that is attempting to elevate and can't. And uh, so obviously we are inside that being that we don't see. So it's a ghostly kind of presence that the people, in a way, hopefully, sensorially uh, can submerge themselves and feel as if they are projecting their own soul <laughs> in the ground by this shadow in the desert in Biscaino that we shot in the in the peninsula. It's, it's, it's a beautiful place. And so this breathing um, and then this, uh, there's this sound of the clothes, the clothes and the jacket of this character that in the shadow is projected in the ground. And then when he start walking and then running and then boom, floats, you hear a little bit the crispiness of this kind of uh, cactaceous plants, you know, that he's breaking with his feet. But it's funny because it's, it's kind of an immaterial kind of scene. So as he elevated, we can hear the sound of his breathing and these plants, and then the wind, a little bit of wind that is flopping the, 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 the clothes that in a way melt with some city sound as you are seeing the mountains that are revealed at the very end of the shot. And these sounds are kind of bells of a church. 
and some kids playing in a very long distance. And you can smell that there's a city in a, in a far remote place and there's this corridor that is very uh, obscure and dark and there's a guy lying there and he's melted. He's like completely defeated in the hospital. And it's a corridor that you don't stand with a beautiful light. And then we go to this, uh, to this, uh, you know, uh, uh, room, uh, hospital room, where a woman is have got just given birth. And again, all this breathing of this person that you don't see his face, his breathing, and then you go into the labor room and you see a breathing of somebody that is watching four doctors that are watching radically to the lens and then you realize that is the point of view of this baby that it has just born so anyway all these sounds are kind of connected as if it was the same person that is transmuting in different perspective and it's clearly that because the scene to all these sounds mesh and mesh into kind of a dreamy uh sequence which was wonderfully designed by Nicolas Becker and, and Martin Hernandez and mixed by, by John, you know. And, uh, and anyway, these are kind of the first minute if I did my best to describe what is that, but it, it is what it is. No, you did a great job. John, tell us about mixing that sequence and leaning into kind of the, 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 the impressionistic and surreal aspects of those scenes in that first few minutes. You know, this is kind of lucky the, that we're talking about that scene specifically, because one night Alejandro was at my house and he wanted to hear that scene that Ken and Nico had just sent. So they emailed it to me and I built it in a session and at my house at probably 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, and we played it. Um, and I, my first impression was, man, that's, uh, it's strange. You know, the, it just sounds strange. And I th thought about it. I said, man, it's perfect. It's absolute, it was perfect. And Alejandro was explaining, you know, the type of, the type of uh, emotion he was, you know, wanted for the film and what it, what the nuances were that, you know, it's a dream state. Everything has to be not quite on. And it was uh, sort of fortuitous that I was able to, you know, get exposed to that, that early on. Uh, but that scene, I remember the most difficult thing were the kids were getting, because you see the kids, how much do you want to hear the kids? You know, how much do you want to pay attention to the kids as they're observing what was happening? And it was just made that scene so unique. You know, you really get that experience from their perspective almost. And I, uh, I love, absolutely loved it. That actually happens every day in any hospital in Mexico. So it's really easy. You just go out. <laughs> You just go there and, and put your microphone in. That happens just like that. No, it's, 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 that, kind, it's that kind of experience here. No, um, I was actually doing the recordings with an ambient microphone and a binaural microphone on that hospital, which is, it's an abandoned hospital now. It's in downtown. And you can tell that there that's that's a jungle it's like many cities inside the city you know like many mexicos are in mexico this city has many every corner is very different in 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 spice in sound in smells and it's very thick it's very dense uh, downtown mexico city so you can't get away without having a, a blast of information in all your senses so i was just there with my microphones and the place is empty so you can really get a chance to sense the the resonance of the outside of the street sounds coming into the resonance of the hall. So I was just, you know, having like four hours there inside, just having perspectives. The the, the cathedral, which is very near, and the, the bell in the cathedral, the cellars in the street, the traffic. So all that, again, is beautiful elements for a soup and uh, but the, the good thing about this is that Alejandro wanted to release a, a feeling of a umbilical cord like the one you see there there is that feeling in sound that is going through the scenes uh, imagine this if you think about Amores Perros was exactly the opposite Amores Perros was cinema verite approach you no know, it's like cut 
reality, microphone, what you know, what production sound is. And, and this is exactly the opposite. This is a blending of this soup in this umbilical cord going through all the film and never lets you go. So Kenja Sumoto cut with a beautiful poetry a lot of the extra elements that are surrounding that. And he said, oh, I, I love this sound that you guys got here. And can, can I get more of that? So I think in the end, uh, having these elements in the right hands are an amazing result. But you don't know how are you going to get from point E, from point A to point B. You don't have uh, an answer or a formula. So Alejandro is constantly researching. And once you get to this point and you think the scene is beautiful, he says, why don't we do that? And you go to the next level. And now the scene is great. And he says, well, now let's go to the next level. So after 10 levels, now you can start having a conversation. Ken, uh, tell us a little bit about working on that sequence and, and also, um, about your collaboration with both, Nic both Nicholas and Martin. Um, about this sequence, sequence it's, in, in fact, it's the first sequence we worked on. And uh, the, the interesting thing was that uh, we, when we worked on this sequence, it was one year ago, I think, in, in November or October. At that time, I didn't, uh, we didn't, uh, uh, we had only this 10 minutes, first 10 minutes, you know, to work on. And so we did. It's important. It's usually you have watched the, the the film before. You know you work on. So it it was very. You cannot project yourself in the, you know, in the, uh, in the narrative way. You know, so it was really um, a strange way way to to work. Uh, you know the picture is strange. These kids in the, the this room and the, the the guy. So you don't know what what it's all about, but you have you have to find you know the right tone. And uh, something that we we discover from the beginning is that the foley would be very important. You know, because of course the first shot when we uh, when we watched it uh, the first time you don't have the. You don't have the, the the shadow. You don't have the you know all these things. So you have to imagine and do foley without having the you know the right picture and uh, try to find the. So in a sense, you you do the the sound before you have the picture. So it was uh, quite interesting. And uh, our first try was a complete uh, uh, fail. Alejandro didn't like it at all. Because we were hired as a sound designer, you know, so we did sound design, a lot of strange sound and everything. Well, it was not right at all. And uh, Alejandro told us about uh, Jacques Tati, the director, the French director. Uh, and he his film is very uh, uh, specific about sound. You know, it's a lot of foley. And it's mixed very, uh, there's no dialogue, um, almost no dialogue, a lot of foley. So we understood at this point that it was maybe, uh, uh, you know, the first uh, tip, you know, to enter in the film, in this film, try to do right foley's. And uh, as you can uh, uh, hear, the, 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 the foley is not mixed. Uh, it, sometimes the, perspe the perspective is different, is not right. I mean, strange you know sometimes very subjective even on on the large uh, shot uh so these 10 minutes were uh, were very important to understand you know the grammar the grammar of the the the, the, the film it doesn't mean that it was easy after that you know, to do but uh, it helps you know and 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 really not to see the the whole film and it's it's it's, it's quite uh uh, an exercise, you know, to to work on a, like on, on a short film, but you know that you have uh, two hours to you know two hours that you don't know after these ten minutes. It's a quite strange experience, yeah. Alejandro, uh, you've worked with Martin for many many years and very successfully over a number of films. But Ken and uh, Nicholas were uh, new to the team this this year. So how did you how did you sort of collaborate with 
uh, with all of these sound designers and artists working together to, co- to to build this track for you? Well, I think Martin and I are getting old, so we need uh, like new new blood, young blood from France. <laughs> it was no, it was a. You know, I think Martin and I have been working together since we were 20 years old, you know, when we were in the radio. So in a way, we have been actually incredibly 40 years working together, and he has been involved in the sound design of all my films. But in this case, we knew that we need something differently because, as Ken is saying, you know, that dreamy perspective and the amount of folly we need somebody extraordinarily to really translate that sensation through these sounds that will be kind of unbalanced uh, in a way that will not be weird, but at the same time are strange enough to be having your subconscious knowing that something is off. So, um, you know, I saw the sound of metal and then, uh, which I thought that uh, they did an amazing job and Nico's name was coming from different sources recommended, and including Darius Konji, the DP. It's a close friend of Nico, and they have worked together in an installation and artistic kind of a pro- projects. And I like that background of Nico, that he has not just done film, but he's kind of a Foley artist that has done collaborator with artists in museums or gallery that are completely more surrounded uh, experience 360. So the understanding of another medium, another another medium that is not only cinema, I think for me was a great sign that this could work. So from the first moment that I have an interview with Nico and I understood his way of thinking and we share some books, psychology books and science books about the neurological thing that I'm very keen to, we suddenly share some kind of, you know, point of view of what we are interested in. And that start, and and I don't remember how, how that it was so bad, Ken. I, I don't remember how bad it was the first attempt. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, bad, 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 bad I, I, I won't say bad, but it was not the right sound for this, this, this film, you know, maybe for the short, maybe for the short fi- 10 minutes, but not for the film. And you you knew that, but we didn't. I mean, it was not. Uh, you know, uh, we cannot judge at this point. But uh, but uh, yeah, it was not good. It was like you know a lot of drones and yeah, you know. It, it was a process. It, it, it took. It took uh, honestly. I think. I think this this design this audio really took us a lot of times and process to really get it right. Everything was very precise, and we all knew when it was not working. You know, I think it was very clear and, and it was hard to find it because it's nothing that you can say, oh, it's about this and this is you don't know how a dream works or, or sound. You have to invent that sound. So I think that was the challenge because this is not a realistic film and reality is much easy to approach because everybody knows how it sounds in reality. The thing is the reinterpretation of that reality that is very subjective and nothing is right or wrong is depending on your taste and your, you know, uh, system. So anyway, I think that took us a long time to really nail it down. But anyway, it was a fantastic collaboration with Ken and, and Nico that they have and, and, and Carolina, uh, you know, I think they, they have an amazing taste. And I don't know, the Frenchmen, they have something about the fries and the sounds i guess <laughs> but it was it, it definitely great. was the same um you know with the music also and really discovering the music it was so great but the little tiny nuances that alejandro was looking for i mean it took time and sometimes we're talking about you know uh scenes just being too either too beautiful or not beautiful enough and really changing how it's going. It's not like you take the music, you put it in eight speakers and call it done. You know, not at all. It's, um, it's a variation of all of that. You know, sometimes mono, sometimes stereo, sometimes LCR, sometimes a little bit of surrounds, you know, and then also the frequency of it. It's the same sort of how is that quality of sound, you know, pooling your emotion. So it's every every aspect. There are a couple of sequences that I wanted to ask you about. Um, I was so mesmerized by the way Alejandro mixed dialogue and narration. 
sometimes even in the same scene, I'm thinking about the wonderful scene with Severio, the, the imposter syndrome scene. Me la paso buscando aprecio entre quienes me desprecian. A todos sin pensar, buscando lo que deseo, pero cuando lo obtengo, lo detesto. Y luego me avergüenzo de haberlo deseado. ¿De qué hablas? Vivo autoconvenciéndome de la importancia de lo que hago, del valor del reconocimiento. Pero cuando llega no siento nada. Lo único que siento es que no lo merezco. Claro que te lo mereces. ¿Qué voy a merecer? Eso es soberbia. Soberbia es tu falsa humildad, Silverio. Siempre haces lo mismo. What were your conversations with Alejandro about switching back and forth in the same scene and she actually says to him at one point your lips aren't moving like what does that do to the audience why was that an important thematic element for the for the film it is uh one of alejandro's very recurrent dream motives i think he has dream about those things and there is there's a lot about the fear and there's a lot about the feeling isolated from the world and that scene needed to have two elements one is the fact that something's always off around there no there's something weird and you can't exactly tell why maybe some sounds are not exactly the ones that you should be hearing there but you are actually hearing them And the other, the other side of the story is that you have to little by little relate uh, the sound of the dialogue of the voice of uh, Silverio's wife, Sofia, and and then you you say little by little you think, oh, we are hearing the sound coming from another reality, from another time. Uh, Lucia, I said, sorry, I said, Sofia is Lucia, no? Well, so you have the challenge of playing that. And what I wanted, because this was something that is, was written like that in, in the script, what we wanted also is that it seamless goes from production sound you know, to... John Taylor did an amazing job all through the film. And he knows... Alejandro very well. He knows me very well. We've done all Alejandro films now uh, with John and and Frank, who was also on effects. But you know, John was very sensitive about what Alejandro was trying to, you know, to to get with that uh, with that element. So it was important to keep those storylines together in that scene and. Uh, But it's it's the beginning of the film in a way, no? Uh, it's early, or at least it's early in the film. So a lot of these things really fall into the right place later, towards the end. The score haunts me. I, I can still hear it now, even weeks later, and it's in such counterpoint to what's happening visually and and in some sense tonally from the rest of the film. Can you talk about sort of how you used music to? In, in in contrast to the other elements of what's happening with the film. Yeah, as I told you, I think I, I got very early that the, that the, the sound of metals will be the thing because there is this very old and traditional music from these bands that are in these little towns, especially Oaxaca. The state of Oaxaca has, you know, thousands of bands in every little town that play this traditional music with uh, tuba and trombone and trumpets and these kind of drums. And this Mexican tradition of music is always includes something that is impossible to repeat in other country, which is that these bands are made as, are of, of, of autodidact kind of musicians, mostly, that they have a beautiful kind of soul to play it, but always they are exquisitely out of tone you know they are always a little bit out of tone and a little bit out of pace so there's something very beautiful about this sound that not being academic kind of rigid musicians they all of them are kind of in their own time so the drum a little bit is always a little bit before or after the note 
But there's something so humble and so beautiful about that, uh, so pure, let's put it that way, that I, I was obsessed about that sound. And, you know, this music is a music that can be heard, has an ability that trigger emotions that are strange and contradictory because, again, you cannot define the, 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 the emotion that the music can make you feel, right? Yes, it can make you happy, it can make you excited, it can make you sad. But there's a lot of emotions that are in between that you don't even know how to call them. And I think this music is something that can be played in, in weddings or it can be played in a funeral. The same, the same one. And, and, and that same tune can make you cry or can make you super happy in a wedding, you know, and it has to do with the Jewish music and the Serbian music that is, is a traditional music from many, many cultures that in a way they are kind of cousins, uh, is very old, has this humanity impregnated in the sound. And there's a guy that is called Faustino, which is the director. And this guy is a guy that had, since he was a kid, his father was the orchestra director of, of in a Oaxacan town. And he started very early as a kid and he started playing wherever any musician was missing. He just taking the father out to, let's say, okay, take the trumpet, take the tuba, take the trombone. And this guy at the 14 years old was a genius. And he went to Mexico City and he studied with the academy in Mexico. And now he's one of the top, you know, metal plays in the world with the orchestras. And, but he has... And he returned and he lives in Oaxaca. Even when he's, you know, traveling with the best with Dudamel around the world, this guy go every year and teach all these kids. So uh, Bryce Desner, who I have a name, which is actually a genius and the, 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 the partner in crime and obviously the, the, the musician that really put all this together with these beautiful compositions, he worked with Faustino too, and I will never, never forgot this image, just for you to make you an idea how we work. Uh, Bryce uh, notes and, 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 and all his writing music. I, we, Bryce and I want that these musicians, normally they play as they are walking, right? These bands are playing around the town to, to make happiness to everybody. So we want to have this movement. And in the studio, I remember that uh, the partitures, the partitures of of Bryce were uh, put in the back of each musician, so all of them were making a line in a circle in the studio, playing the trumpets and playing the tube and playing the trumpet, and they were reading the partiture of of Bryce in the back of the guy in front, and I can see this American incredible musician directing this one and ta ta ta. So it was the image of this American guy with all these uh, incredible uh, uh, musicians in, in of this humble town in the studio. And it was fantastic, the sound. You know, it was something. And again, deliberately, uh, Bryce was directing them a little bit off. And it was a beautiful exercise. And they did it normally. And it, you, just, to, just to finish this thought that I have is that when we were recording with the academic and great musicians, uh, the, the strings, Bryce and I asked them if they can be a little bit crazy for the clips. There's a moment that the sun goes down, right, in downtown. So we want to have this atonal kind of sensation of, muse, of, of instrument out of control. And we invite them to lose control and play wrong, play wild, break the, the instrument. And they couldn't. They couldn't. So for more that we invite them to be completely anti-academic and break the rules of music and do something horrendous, for more that they try, it was not enough. <laughs> because they are absolutely, completely correct and conventional in the sound that has to be right, which they are right, but when you invite them that. So what I'm saying is that it's funny to be a little bit off is an art. You know, I, in, in Mexico, we allow ourselves to have bad taste. And I think art should allow bad taste and mistakes and imperfections because that is the biggest, I would say, expression of humanity, <laughs> you know? Santiago, I have so many questions for you. Uh, there are so many big sequences in this film. Um, I'm, thinking about the, I'm thinking about the long tracking shot as we follow into Luis's television studio. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, 
recreation of storming the castle, which is, again, has that great music. Toward the end of the Mexican-American War, a group of students, cadets, were surrounded by American soldiers right here in this castle. The reality is they were simply slaughtered. But with time, a myth was formed around that event. What myth? I wanted to give Alejandro and the post team as most as I can, uh, I can give it. And those long shots in in the television sets, where where well, we have playbacks, we have time codes running. I mean, wireless time codes, wireless playbacks, radio mics, and all the actors. Uh, the set was moving, walls moving for the camera to pass through the to the camera in, and we have all. All these scenes, uh, Alejandro chose these these lenses that were very that were very 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 wide. So I use sunken mics. That is more. If you have a good exit, you have a proximity effects a, a little bit more. Uh, we try to give everything. I mean, the Cafeteria Express, the, the Coffee Espresso machine in the Camerine. Uh, there is a wild track for that, a mag for that. But for me, for me, the most complicated scene besides the, the California was the kitchen that has 11 uh, dialogue pages. Yeah, we have rain on the... <laughs> At the beginning, that scene was one shot deal. So it was 11 pages dialogue with playbacks, with the actors changing clothes in the middle in the scene, the actress making a chilaquiles from, from zero. So that was, I mean, we have mics even on, uh, on the computer, on every actor, on the refrigerator, on the coffee machine, even inside an orange on the plate fruit, we have a, a mic on there. We have to fight with the special effects guys because in order to get the rain that Alejandro wanted, we have several water pumps, different. I mean, Alejandro didn't want the, the rain that comes rain. He wanted like a pace in the drops, in the window, with, uh, with different uh, speeds of the fans for the things. And everything came down on a pound with plastic thing on the top for, for recollect the water. And then water pumps to take out the water. So that was for me the, the most complicated scene. And, and if, if everyone fuck up, we need to start from the beginning, the 11 pages, reset the set, reset the chilaquiles and stuff. And I like that scene and I, everything was fixed with coconut fiber. All the all the all the stage the sound stage white cover was covered with coconut fiber for for didn't hear the rain, and the other thing was the immigrants in San Luis. window of time for doing that because the lighting that Alejandro wanted was very small. We we have almost two hours by day for accomplish that shots with the helicopter and the immigrants and that that was a challenging. But anyway, recorded everything that I couldn't. Uh, we use every kind. I mean, for example, in Chapultepec, that really I have one dialogue scene. Inside in the Chapultepec castle with very thick walls and everything. So I decided that the scene did that scene with my main boom guy and sent the other crew with sensorial mics, I mean, MS, uh, 
uh, the surround mics, everything to record the extras, everything that was happening around Chapultepec. And that was the approach for almost all the movie. G try to give Alejandro as most as most of I, me and my crew can handle. And he asked for it all. He, he would be like, I remember he recorded this. <laughs> no, he asked for, for everything and yeah. it was a pleasure. And it was a pleasure to have a director directing wild tracks. Yeah. No, normally like, okay, I need a wild track of that. Please do that for me. No, Alejandro stays there and direct the wild tracks with the extras and with the cars in, in downtown Mexico. That was a pleasure. When Silverio uh, confronts Hernan Cortez uh, up on the mountain, that's such, from a sound perspective, that's such a surreal, and he's climbing up all those bodies and getting up to the top, and then they have that conversation. Yo nunca quise una guerra. Me enamoré de estas tierras, de esos gente. Qué palabras tan románticas en boca de un asesino. Asesino. Yo construí los cimientos para el nuevo mundo. Mis hijos son los primeros mexicanos, por lo tanto yo soy su padre, le guste o no. Viví como mexicano, no. Y morí más mexicano que nadie. Lamento decirle, don Hernán, que aquí en México lo odian tanto como en España. No hay una sola estatua de usted. <risa> Alejandro wanted to have uh, the feeling of the of the flesh, of the closeness. So Foley-wise, the first approach was uh, rather realistic and in the end turned out to be, you know, going towards the, the flesh part of the feeling. But by the time you get to that point, you already crossed the emptiness of the Zócalo, no? And the Zócalo is the heart and the core of the city. That is where the actual original Tenochtitlan was built. And all the big city of the Aztecs was built there. And then Spaniards came and built on top of that, the city as we know, the cathedral and all that. So Nico, he decided to give a relevance to the actual resonance of all that trip. And you see these dogs crossing in front of the camera and that emptiness. Emptiness is always a very good canvas to make things resonate because you can tell sound, the sparse of the sound and the resonance of the sound really tell you, oh, this is very empty, very deep, very wide. So by the time you get to the pile of bodies, which by the way, is another Alejandro motive, he wanted to make uh, an installation in a museum with dancers and they ended up piled like that. Uh, it never, it, 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 I don't know, he still wants to do that, but he, he never did a, a piece like that. But he used that motive on, on the scene. But the good thing is that later it, it goes 180 degrees to another side. And a lot of people is not going to catch the funny thing there because they start singing Sube Pelayo Sube. And that Sube Pelayo Sube is a joke about a TV program in Mexico in the 70s that was really very famous, very popular, very, very famous. And it, it was a contest show, like they do contest shows now. And people had to climb uh, um, a pole that had grease. So the challenge was not only climbing, but you had, you know, a boy so that was the silliest thing in the world. If you get to the top, you get like a million pesos or something like that in the 70s. So the people was chanting, sube, pelayo, sube. And that became like a, like a mantra in the 70s. One of my favorite sequences in the film, and I would love for you all to talk about this, is the big party scene uh, with the dancing. And then, of course, just that extraordinary usage of the Bowie song, Let's Dance. Well, that scene was like 16 lavaliers, three booms, 
several MS rigs, uh, several planted mics, try to record uh, what I can, the steps, uh, people dancing and stuff. Uh, Martin did a great playback track, no, that was already with the cues for the music to change. No, that was already made by Martin, and the actors were were, were really great taking the, the the cues. No, it was an amazing scene. Uh, at the beginning, the plan was record everything, the, all this plus the live plus recording live the band. Every take recording recorded the, the the band. And I remember Alejandro called me one night and say, I don't like the how the band is sounding. So I have a really good um, recording of that band already made on a studio, and I wanted that that recorded to sound as if the band was playing live. No, so that became another more sensual mice for for pick up the resonance of the place and stop. I talked with Martin for that, but that was the I mean the. Greatest scene that I make in my life. I never did something like that. Several machines running, several guys with mics. It was crazy. That was crazy. But I love the scene. I mean, I just cry when I saw it. I, I love Wawi anyway. <laughs> yeah, for sound, it's a, it's an opportunity, a unique opportunity to have the actual real place, but because that's a sixty-year-old place, dancing club, no. And the resonance there is beautiful. So we, we had the chance to have the place for us empty and use the PAs to get the playback of the music and then get the resonance. John used the actual recordings near, mid shot, far, all that to get the sense of that truthfulness. And we did the same with the extras. I brought like a hundred dancers and we played around with the microphones and that's this, the real sound of their shoes, their feet, their dressings and the resonance and all that combination. The result is, is that. So it's, it's very unique to have that rather than being on a stage. You know? Alejandro, um, question for you. Talk to me about that Bowie song and the way you treated let's dance. It was just so it's, again, it's, it became mesmerizing and surreal and it completely affected my feeling just hearing the isolated vocal track. Was that something that you experimented with in post and found, or was that a, did you originally conceive of that scene playing that way? No, those, that sequence, actually all the music that I used, uh, it was written in the script actually that, that actually, I forgot to tell you that, that in the script, the, the, the thing uh, that I included was the music uh, very precisely and the songs that it will be played. And er very early I had this crazy idea of using the, the songs a cappella uh, because the same reason, it, if I, I was playing kind of a radical point of view of the character, I want the people to submerge in a radical point of view. That's why I shot it that way as always you know, it's, it's, the, it's the POV of, of Silverio. And and in this dream state, you know, I always thought that when you, when you, in a way, sing a song that you like, you just mumble the lyrics, right? So you have a Beatles song or a Rolling Stone, whatever your favorite band, and you are just mumbling the lyrics. That's how it sounds in your consciousness, right? And that's and then you strip the music, but the music is not playing, but it's playing in your imagination, but you are just mumbling the lyrics. So I want that sensation. I want Silverio to have, in a way, strip out the music and hear the songs three times. There's a, a song that is called In the Cage from Genesis, from The Lamb Lies Down in Broadway, which is one of my favorite albums of all time. And, and I asked Peter Gabriel permission to use it that way. And then it has another crooner of Mexico, which is my favorite singer that is called Jose Jose in the beach. So we use that a cappella too. And then obviously the star was uh, let's dance at that moment that I want that Silverio in a way got out of reality and suddenly got into his joy. And it was personal, individual, interior joy where he suddenly is out of space 
enjoying himself with the family around, with his friends, with the Mexican craziness of cumbia and death and smell and sweat <laughs> and, and, the, and the cumbia band, the salsa band. But suddenly I want him to suddenly get out of everything. And through the a cappella voice of David Bowie of Let's Dance, you know, we could do that. Suddenly that voice of, of Bowie sounding in the interior of this room, that is the cathedral of the salsa, where normally they, this room allowed 14,000 people to be dancing. We were 800 people there. It was hell. It was in the middle of the pandemic. Everybody has, you know, protocol of COVID tests, uh, masks. Everybody was coughing. There was no AC. Coughing, sniffing, farting, smoking, 800 people, hot as hell. And scared to death that we will be infected by COVID. It took us weeks to do that. All that sequence is long. So it was re extremely difficult with so many extras, avoiding not looking to the camera and obviously the choreography of the actors and every single guy. And then, you know, Ari Robinson, we did this with the Trinity, which is this kind of crazy, very, very heavy kind of a steady cam, very differently because you can go up and down with a 65 millimeters camera that is super heavy. And it was obviously everything in one shot. And at the end, Ari has to go up in a stairs to get that wide shot and then return. So it was a very difficult choreography technically. But I think the fact that you don't hear nothing of all that people and suddenly you just hear this song, it's very magical. You know, it, it plays very well, I think. It's a sequence that I'm very happy because it's... a. Uh, it was, a, it was a concept that w when we materialized, it was super challenging. But I think it played off. I think, I think it's something unique. And, and I think we all can feel that we have been in that place. Maybe when you're a little bit drunk, more than drunk, you can feel that way in a, in a, in a club, maybe. You know, talking about that, as far as the, the club goes, uh, going back to it's all the dialogue in there is production. Uh, I don't think we used any ADR. It was all production, and it all had playback. So getting those microphones to mix in with the music, you know, worked out tremendously well. Um, thank God. I mean, it really played nicely. So incredible job, Santiago. But going back to it, as far as the movement of the music and the club and trying to, you know, capture everything to where it's not sitting there, and then going to the Bowie song, uh, the Bowie the boy vocals are almost completely in the overheads. So other than the other music, which is surrounding you and all of the lower speakers, that one goes up. So it is completely, you know, surreal. Um, and I didn't play it that much that way in the beginning. And Alejandro said, yeah, just go for it. Just let's do that. And so people in Atmos can really get a, you know, really get their money's worth. And it's just, it sets itself up to where you definitely get that dream effect. Um, and it's just another point of the movie that in that sells it very strongly that this is there's you know it's not always normal there's you know it's going to take different directions all the way through and that's just one small piece of the film that uh, gives you a different point of view you know what i remember now that you were talking about is that martin martin had to when we were mixing the sound of the shoes and the clothes and the, the, the sensation of the people was not there because obviously the music was was real in the set. Uh, I think that's important. People thought that it was a post-production decision. So the songs were already edited. The band was playing. So it was real thing that was happening there. And when the girl, Jimena, has to clap to change to the cumbia, La Pava Cabado, that was there. So what I'm saying, it was the music was sounding there. So it was a lot of noise. So all the nuances of the clothes and the breathing and the shoes obviously was not recorded. So Martin had to return to the place and we hired like 100 extras. And Martin has to do the follies of all these shoes and all these things. So all the nuances that you hear was done later to add to what Santiago has recorded but we have to add layers of humanity uh, to do to 
create that sensation because the music was so loud that nobody can hear it was real music sounding in the stage. And Martin did all these, uh, he recorded all these loop groups, not only the, 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 the footsteps, but also a lot of voices on, on, on location, on exactly the same place, the California Club. And uh, we used all these, you know, sounds to, 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 to create this crowd. Uh, it was it was a, a very uh, tough thing to do for, for us for the for the French guy of the uh, of the crew because it's very cultural you know this kind of nightclub we don't we don't have this kind of nightclub in France the music I didn't know uh, so uh, you know you have to understand how it sounds how the people react to the music to put the right sound so so it was. Um, uh, Mexican loop groups done by Martin, but we had to cut it, you know, at the right place, the right moment, and understand how the the, the crowds react to the music. It was not easy, but very. Uh, I, I like to to do the, the whole scene. I mean, when they enter the California club, but also the rooftop was not that easy because you have all these background sounds of Mexico that. I haven't been there. I, I I don't know Mexico, so it was it was a, a quite difficult, you know, to to cut. And Alejandro was very precise on this car. I want to hear this, you know, this siren sound at this place, and it was very very precise. It's it's just not a, a background that we just cut on the whole scene. All car sound, trucks, siren voices everything is very precise done by alejandro <laughs> on, on on the on the mixing say don't blame me yeah 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 <laughs> i went to mexico city just uh uh probably about three months before i saw it or four months something like that and visited uh chapultepec and it was it was an amazing experience and it really uh i think it it helped me a lot you know as far as what sounds i was used to hearing um in that part of the city uh, it was, uh, it, it, man, I loved it. I had such a great trip. Absolutely fantastic. So when it came to the sounds of the film, it really was like, oh, yeah, there, we could do that, 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 all these different sounds. Alejandro, uh, John uh, brought up putting the Bowie song in the overheads. And I'm curious for you, uh, Dolby Atmos as a storytelling tool. We've talked a lot about the tone and sort of the surreal impressionistic aspects what did Dolby Atmos unlock for you as a storyteller to be able to uh, express that tone for an audience? Well, I think the Atmos is an, an incredible tool to use in, in very precise moments. I, I think the danger with Atmos, as with any technology, is that it's so powerful and so seducing that you can be tempted to use to use to overuse it, you know, to exaggerate that. In my point of view, I think the sound in our daily lives is very complex, right? We, we have a 360 incredible surround sound that is more than 7.1, you know? And so in a way, we have an atmos integrate to our sensorial audio perception. So the way we hear the world is much more complex than any theater. So we have atmos included. So it's nothing that we should be, in a way, scared to use but I think it has to be a justification or something for use it with precision because I think the Atmos can be tempted to to overuse it and then the the effect of the Atmos can be killed by using it too often. Uh, so in this case, I think we used that uh, very precisely in scenes that we knew uh, it needed. For example, the helicopter when the immigrants are in crossing the the the, 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 the you know that that um, highway, and then the helicopter pass literally on top of our heads, and even you start hearing it before. That's where really the atmos is fantastic because it make you feel in the right spot at the right time, or in the music scene too, right? Where you have speakers on top of the dancers. So I think, or for example, we use it too in the bells of the cathedral, right? So suddenly when the bells of the city are sounding, suddenly you have a little bell in the sky. So I will say that it, it, it's depending on how you use it, the way we use it, I think I'm very happy because it's, I don't know, 
maybe John already went, but I think it's, it's subtle, but very potent um, because it's strategically in the right moments. But I think it's an amazing tool. Absolutely. No, I appreciate that. It's, it's the, the specificity and the directionality that you use in this film w was really um, astonishing for me. So final question, Alejandro, for you. Uh, I've read that you worked on the film until the last possible minute before you showed it at Venice and Telluride. And then I, I know that you went back and made changes after those festivals. And I asked this question because we have a lot of, in our audience on the Dolby podcast, we have a lot of young filmmakers. And I, I know they'd be very interested in hearing about your process. What was it about watching the film with an audience? What did you learn from that? And is that an important part of your process as you make, the, as you make films? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, normally in any film, I have my usual suspect that I show uh, my editing. And sometimes you can do a kind of a family friend screenings to have a room filled with people because I think a film borns in the moment that you show it in a in a in a in a in a, in a screening room or in a theater with people. So, I mean, a film felt feels different. Uh, it took me one year to edit this film with Monica Salazar, and it, you are so close that it's hard to have perspective, and you are seeing this in a tiny room, so it's very close. You say you are your film is in the womb. Let's put it that way. So, in the moment that you took him took it out and see it with people, it plays differently. You realize a lot of things, and I didn't have this chance this time because the visual effects took much longer than we spent. So I see the first time the film in, in Venice with 2,000 people in the theater uh, for the first time. And I immediately realized that I could really keep working in some scenes that they were good, but I could go in later and I could go out earlier and I can make them thinner and kind of more clear or more more to the point in a, in a faster way, you know what I mean? So it was not needed a little bit of that fact, let's put it that way. So I did not change nothing. Essentially, it's the same film. It's the same person. It's just thinner, you know? It, it looks a little better, a little, you know? So, so it, in a way, I put it in shape. And to be honest... I could work in the editing for years. It's an endless process. I love editing, and I think a film is closer to perfection when you cannot strip out nothing else. So if it was for me, you sometimes you have to give up that because you have a festival, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, schedule or 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 a schedule of of release the film. But if it was for me, I would keep uh, still editing the film, and I know that I could be even making it better and better and and you know stronger. It's it's it, it, you know it's a process. It's like you when you write an article, I guess you would like to keep working on it. You can make it better all the time. So anyway, you are sculpting the film, and it's an endless job. So anyway, I had the chance to do it. It was clear, and then three weeks I got that out twenty two minutes. And nobody can tell me, oh, my God, I remember. No, you, you, cannot, you, you don't know what I took out. And that's the magic of, of editing. And I'm a butcher. I, I don't care about my scenes. I love some of many scenes, that I, but I have to take them out, and I don't touch my heart. I kill. I kill my darlings, as Faulkner says. You, know, you, you have to kill them. Anyway, that's, that's the process that I have. Well, I appreciate your telling us about that. Gentlemen, it's such a great pleasure to talk with you about this film, which I honestly dearly love. It's one of my it's one of my favorite films of the year, and I thank you for making it and putting it out into the world. It's a real gift. No, th Alejandro th thank Ken you. Santiago. Thank you. And thank you for doing this of the audio, because, again, I really think that this film is audio 75%. Honestly, I mean, I think... It's, it's it, the, the, the work that uh, that all these guys did, you know, working with Martina, Nico, and Kane, and Carolina, and Santiago, and John, and Frankie, and, you know, it was such a great team, and, and Bryce Desner in the music. I think it's my favorite film, audio-wise, by far. So, I, mean, I think it's a much more complex and difficult film that, that I have done, and, and the work that this team is invaluable and the experience of the audio in a in a dolby and a, in an atmo system is you can you can close your eyes and really understand and feel the film so i think the job that uh, they did this team did is absolutely extraordinary you know i'm very happy with it thank you so much to santiago john ken martin and of course alejandro and for joining us today 
And very special thanks to our friends at Netflix for coordinating everyone's extremely busy schedules to put this conversation together. But before you go, please make sure you have subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. We've been so fortunate to have so many top directors, editors, animators, cinematographers, and of course, sound artists on our show this past year. And believe me when I say there's a lot more where that came from. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms in our show notes, or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This has been the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thank you for listening.